Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Back on In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episode 184, we presented an essay and then discussion afterwards on one quote of Richard Rohr's, which I thought was indicative of the problems that some of the new quote-unquote progressive directions modern Christianity seems to be veering off into. Mac Wales, pastor, director of the Door of Hope Women's Ministry, and past guest back by the woodpile, has had some personal experiences with Rohr's teachings, and so agreed to talk about not only the initial essay, but also his own thoughts and feelings about the man and the crisis of modern Christianity. Initially, when I, when I came across Richard Rohr, I was really stimulated by what I was hearing and reading, um, and I wish that I could cite the the actual first encounter I had with him, and I'm not sure, it, but I think it was probably an interview on a podcast. Got, you know, I really identified with a lot of what he was saying because he was talking about the the church in its current state, which I do believe is on the cusp of some sort of change that uh, that we we have we almost have to, and not that we can conjure up the change, but that God is is ushering the church into sort of a, a new era. So Richard Rohr was in touch with that, uh, and it was very stimulating. And that he was talking about um, you know the the confines we've given ourselves to this, you know, one hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning constituting church. And so I went on in to order a couple of Richard Rohr books and devoured every podcast I could find. Every podcast I could find with Richard Rohr on it, I, I, I chewed it up and spit it out. Um, and and what he really, one of, the, one of his main you things... You chewed it up and swallowed yeah, shoot them swallowed. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but when he talks about deconstruction, which is a big buzzword now, you know, he, he would talk about deconstruction in a way that made so much sense to me in that we have these these three boxes, essentially. First, you have the, if you've grown up in a Christian home, you've grown up around faith, or even in the Bible Belt, like, you know, we're saturated with church, we're saturated with Jesus, and we've been handed this idea of Jesus. We, we've we been handed by our parents um, a Baptist Jesus or a Methodist Jesus or whoever, and, and these are his moral rules, and that's how this plays out. And then you go, typically, I'd say you go to college or in that early 20s area, and then you begin to take that box A that was handed to you that had very defined boundaries that were important for you as a young Christian, as a young person. You begin to deconstruct that and, and you start to learn what that a lot of it isn't necessary. And Richard Rohr's talking, there's always, though, you have to go to the third box in which you reconstruct your faith. Uh, the problem that I see with so many people is when when we start when they start the deconstruction process, they they take a block off of the house and they look at it and discard it, and they take the second block off and look at it and discard it. And after three or four blocks in a row that seem like these aren't part of my faith, 
they throw the whole thing out and so then never go to do the work of reconstructing. But if we can get to the point of reconstructing, the faith becomes our own. I even think of Christians that, that become converts later in life, uh, including myself. I mean, I was born and raised in Christianity, but uh, in my early days of actually walking it out, had these very rigid boundaries uh and and i knew what you ought to be doing and what i ought to be doing and these were the lines and you have to stay in them and as i've grown and matured i've started to realize those those lines are not the same for everybody not so much to each his own which is where i think richard Rohr starts to go down a slippery path because he gets a little bit into to each his own relativism relativism yeah and that's where we start to we start to separate paths so in in a lot of roar's work i find a lot of really good meaty stuff that i want to keep but the further he goes i think into his ministry the the further off track he's get he's getting this reminds me of so many arguments uh, a little bit Maybe this be a stretch, but like Nietzsche talked about the ubermatch, the, the, the overman, the, the superior human being, basically. And how Nietzsche declared that God was dead and that the regular people, once they figure that out, it wasn't going to end well. Like they couldn't handle that they, if they realized the fact that they were nothing more than just talking animals, I'm, I'm dumbing it down, but then it would lead to a lot of terrible stuff. But the ubermatch could handle the truth. And it would be a good thing. So, kind of how you described it sounds like most people don't handle the boxes too well. Do you think that's true? And do you think that that makes the boxes bad, or just means that maybe people were not rooted in something strong to begin with? I don't think that the boxes are bad. I think all of the boxes are good, including the deconstruction box. I think that that um, if we are going to own our faith, uh, we have to go through those those boxes. So. A lot of people, uh, when the boxes become unhealthy, I think is when we when we stay in it. So even if you're in your first box and, and you're very rigid and, and you're you're you know, I don't want to use the word fundamentalist, but you're very rigid in your faith and and you are and you have a lot of certainties. I'm certain about this. I'm mm-hmm. certain about that. And, and uh, lots of finger pointing. You, you can stay in that box, and you can stay in it from now until kingdom come, right. literally, you know. Uh, and I, I think that that's when it becomes unhealthy because you don't grow. You're, you're not, you don't really grow spiritually when you just cling to that. Okay, so there's this rigidity, which at certain times can be right, especially when you're new. But when you get a little older, things become a little looser. Now, I should play contrarian with you and say, well, truth is truth. So how can something be true early on and be untrue later on? And how can something be true for one person and not true for another? Okay, so let's take um, an age-old discussion of alcohol and whether it is a sin to have a drink mm-hmm. of alcohol. Early in, you know, I was I, I was very rigid in that alcohol. There is there is nothing good that can come from alcohol, and nobody should be drinking it. Mm-hmm. Now, there is an element of truth in there that is that is undeniable, and it doesn't change. 
So the fact of the matter is, alcohol is a substance that every every one of us are two steps away from sliding down a really dark path and it becoming a controlling, life-destroying thing. So even even though you it's not a sin for you to have a beer, you are, in fact, playing with fire and that there's always that chance that you could become an alcoholic. Nobody's re- no, nobody is uh, immune to that disease. Mm-hmm. So there, there is that truth, but at the same time, it, it's, it's a, what's true for me might not be true for you and that I know that I, I, I'm an alcoholic and that I cannot drink. If I do, I will go down that path. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it becomes then... You know, you may be able to have a beer or a glass of wine, and that is perfectly okay with me. If uh, and I don't end up like singing in the front yard, right? And throwing Ex- rocks at exactly. Cars. And so, therefore, it's it's not a it, it does not constitute a sin to me. Okay. So there, that's that's probably one of the clearest examples that I have of um, of what's true is true. Okay, and here's another one. There's this the the cliche saying that says garbage in, garbage out, and it talk and what we're talking about is our media consumption. You know, and that if you watch or listen to certain music, movies, or things, uh, that that pollutes your heart. Now, I believe that that's tr- a true statement. That 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 does and can happen. Mm-hmm. I think that the earlier you are in your faith, the more rigid you need to be with that because you're more easily, it's more easily uh, polluted or swayed. Now, as as you grow, I feel like the Holy Spirit then begins to sort of, it, he might tell me, I don't need to watch something that he's not told you that same thing. Mm-hmm. And, and for where the strength of your spirit and your heart is in the Lord Jesus, it may be different than mine or what our weak points are. And so, again, truth is that, that unnegoti- it's not negotiable to me that, that, that what we take in media-wise does influence us. The, the subjective part of it becomes then how does that play out in Tim's life? How does that play out in Max's life? Might not look exactly the same. As I mentioned on the first episode I did with this tethered thing, I'm still writing this enormous essay and eventually we'll have parts of it on the podcast. But one thing I try to argue is that, you know, yes, there are some things that are relative, like you're saying, or it, 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 one's, it could be good for one person and bad for another, and that's just the way of it. But there are certain things that I feel like we need to be tethered to that do not change. Uh, so, for example, I give like the Ten Commandments, of course, and then yeah. you know, the, the first or the uh, two greatest commandments that Jesus says. I, I say that's a good starting point. I feel like that uh, progressives. I, w- I don't want to accuse Richard Rohr of this necessarily, but people who are big fans of Richard Rohr <laughs> are starting to even question that. That you know you could say to most progressive Christians like that all 12 of those commandments are uh, given, but it gets, some of them get a little gray. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So, uh, of course, in the business you're in, you're trying to help ladies avoid abortion and raise a child healthily and all that. So many progressives are starting to embrace abortion as a, as a health care right or a, a human right or something to that degree. A property right, you might even say. Where I, I would say that it's still violating, you know, that shall not, you know, murder. Yeah. Social justice issues, how some progressives want to, you know, the government to get involved to redistribute income or property 
to me, that's another symptom of, um, you know, thou shalt not covet. You know, it's not my business what other people have. You know, I, 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 don't, yeah. I shouldn't want it. You know, I, I can't help it sometimes. <laughs> they got some really cool stuff. But they may argue that, that we're just arguing fine points, or maybe I'm just not sophisticated enough to see that that isn't a violation. What say you about everything I just said or something about what I just said? One of the things that comes to mind is thinking about what are primary primary truths and or what are primary issues and secondary issues and of course I would never want to consider uh, abortion uh, a secondary issue it's a primary issue to me because as you said it is about uh, life and and murder and those those commandments which which I don't think are flexible I like those are those are some of the things that I would say are fixed truth one of the things that I will lean on when I think about what 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 are my fixed truths uh, are the creeds, particularly the Apostles' Creed? You know, so like the statements of the Apostles' Creed. If you're not familiar with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ His only Son, so on and so forth. And these things that the Church historically, for for thousands of years, has agreed. These are primary issues that are not that are not up for negotiating. In fact, you know, for most of our our church's history, you've been, you know, considered heretical if you step outside of that, those creeds, whatever the official creeds were at the time. It's interesting you say that, the official creeds at the time. So the progressive would argue with you. See, it's changing there. Yeah. And why is it good for one? generation and not for another i'm, I'm just playing contrary with you. you know the very first creed ever was as simple as jesus is lord that was the first creed uh, of the the apostles mm-hmm. jesus is lord the reason that the creeds ever did change was because of new heresies and so as you as you see the 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 creeds evolve and change it's because the truths had to be protected and so it isn't a change based on what we want to include or have happened now or anything. It's it's a it was a guardianship of the truth that had been entrusted to the church. And so that that's where you see changes. It's like uh, you're right if you're in management, you know, and you you're writing policy manuals. You you can't add a new policy for every time somebody. Uh, you know, today someone was late for work because they stopped to get coffee. So now we need a new policy that says coffee must be obtained before 7.50 a.m. You know, but I've worked at places where that's a thing. <laughs> right. Every every rule is because somebody in the past had, had done something stupid. Yeah. And now we all have to live with it. That's kind of what I see happening in the creeds where there are changes. It's to guard against. It's to guard against the very thing we're talking about. And that is where people want to make the truth negotiable or change them alter them in, in, in some way there's a friend of mine and we, we have this conversation so often about the law the Levitical law you know and the, the Levitical law is really divided into three categories you have the ceremonial law and the moral law and do you recall the third one I can't off the top of my head I don't know well Priestly, maybe? Priestly, yeah. Because yeah. I still think in the terms of the four, I can't remember what they call them, but the, the, they're the four strands that run through the Old Testament. And priestly is really where a lot of that comes from. Yeah. You know, because they, I know we're boring people. And I, I, again, it's something I've written, <laughs> written about. But uh, 
you know, some of the scripture was written during different time periods, and you know, the temple didn't exist right for a time. And when it did exist, and then, then a lot of scripture started to reflect what the priest uh, were, uh, what was important to them, what what they thought was important. So, for example, tithing, for example, giving ten percent. It's not that there wasn't sacrifice before, but you know, the, the priests were basically trying to make sure that they had enough money to, I think, in theory, look after the poor. But also look after themselves because that's how they ate, you know, made a living and then brought some wealth to the, um, or income, I should say, to the to the temple. We So we discuss, are we obligated to follow the law? You know, there's this verse in Matthew. I think and and which laws? Yeah, right. And who gets to determine that? Because there's a, there's a passage where Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And I tell you the truth, not a jot or a tittle will disappear until yeah, such and such and such. And so I don't believe that we are obligated to follow the law. But just as you were saying, like even when the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon, they simply could not follow the law. There was no temple. There was no way to do the ceremonial laws. There was no way to do the priestly laws. You, you, but the moral, the moral, and this is where we really come down to the crux of what we're talking about today, is, is the moral law. And is there moral law and is god the one who sets that standard and are we subject to follow it today and i think in the you know in the broad sense the answer is yes and so you talk about fixed fixed truth that there is um, there is a fixed truth and it you know what it's okay to say that and we have christians have gotten kind of where we're scared to say it uh, but it is okay to say there is a fixed truth about sexuality that God's design for marriage is a man and a woman and it's for procreation and filling the earth and representing his relationship with his brother. You, you know, you go on. The, those are fixed truths. It's okay to have that. But then we've turned it into that if you, if you say that fixed truth, then now you are a bigot or you're hateful. Jesus, in the story of the rich young ruler, he, the rich young ruler comes out and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, obey the law. Obey, you know, honor your father and your mother. Don't steal, don't murder. And he quotes a few of the laws. He says, do, do all these. And the, the man says, I've done all these things since I was a boy. And this is a really important line. It says, Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, one thing you like, go sell everything you own and then come and follow me. He looked at him and loved him and told him the truth. Oh, that's interesting. And it was so. So we've equated with that that to say an absolute truth, you you can't be loving and do that. Uh-huh. And so our world has distorted this view of love, where Jesus clearly models that. And I think the important part of it is that it, it's prefaced with saying he looked at him, loved him, and then confronted him. And a part of what we really need to work on as the North American church is the looking, the listening part, the seeking to understand because he he, he was able to confront the young ruler because he understood him and he saw him. And, and we, we a lot of times are, are thinking about our rebuttal rather than trying to understand. Okay, and let's go, let's take abortion, for instance. Um, and that to me, it has become... It's, it's polarized. You got left and right. And on the right, it's an issue of the sanctity of human life. On the left, it's an issue of women's health care. These are two totally different things. 
So we're arguing, we're arguing against each other about different things. However, if I take myself and, and I try to understand the, the mindset of, of a pro-choice person, and I'm understanding, I, I'm looking at them, I'm hearing them, that they, that they in their heart believe that this is about whether or not a woman will have the right to choose her own health care. Well, of course I agree with that. Absolutely. You'd be a maniac to say, no, women shouldn't have rights to their own health care. And in fact, part of your job is providing that, right? Provide, right. Our job is to, is to provide free health care for women, you know, to be able to make their own choices about what to do with their body, but well-informed well and with all of the facts. So I am 100% in favor of women's health care and the, their freedom. And you actually practice it. And I practice yeah. it. It's not just theory. It stops short, whereas on the on our side, we, we look at it as a human rights issue. It's about the sanctity of human life. So anyway, I say that to say that it takes my anger, like a, a lot of my anger for pro-choice people or frustration, I would say, not even anger, but just like, well, how could they possibly think that? Well, I see how they think that, and I understand. I get it, and so I can't blame them, you know, but because what they're actually arguing for is a good thing. There's just an element of the puzzle that's being left out, and that is that this is a human life who's entitled to its own rights. Sometimes when I've talked to uh, folks that aren't religious and, you know, they're talking about, well, why do you believe what you believe? You know, a lot of times they see the law, uh, especially with sexual mores, and admittedly, it sounds like no fun because if there is no rules, you can kind of, you know, have a lot of experiences with a lot of people and it can be no big deal. And I understand that that does sound like a lot of fun, you know, but one thing, and this is from just really part of my own experience, but also just, you know, old age and seeing a lot of stuff, I start to see, or start to argue with them and say, well, on the surface it looks like a lot of fun, but there are consequences. And I try to argue that most things that Judaism and Christianity call sin is really for our own protection, is out of love, because, you know, obviously there's all these repercussions from having a good time with everybody down the block. You know, there's STDs, there's yeah. pregnancies, there's heartbreak and all these other things. When it comes to arguments about abortion and homosexuality and some other things that are hot topics for the progressives, I find myself, again, trying to be practical and pragmatic. Instead of arguing about the theology of sin, and now I'm moving the argument over to you know, people who are believers, but just on the progressive end of it. Do you feel like that's kind of a, should I stick with the, argument about obedience, what the nature of sin is in the Christian uh, Jewish sense, or should I go with the uh, the practical, like, you know, there's death, there's, you know, there's warts on your di- your uh, thing, and, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> yeah. you know, because I've heard some people say, like, you're wasting your time on both sides, like, you, you need to just, if you're arguing with your Christian, you need to stick with theological arguments, if you're arguing with a secular person, you need to stick with something they understand, which are 
again, warts on your I, I, hoo-ha. I, I think I'll throw a big wrench into your, okay. your, your issue here um, and and ditch, ditch the word argument altogether. Right. Well, they bring it up. They yeah. want to talk about it. Right, because they, they do. And yeah. So you have progressives or non-believers that want to, they're, they're looking to evangelize you. They want to convert you, and they're using, it's funny because they use the very thing that they don't want in, in their in their tactic there because they want all of the truth to be subjective yet they are um, giving you an absolute truth you know yeah. so they're arguing to you with an absolute truth right. uh, and I, I have found that it's a it's a losing battle and that to to if someone is is wanting to pick that fight so to speak and engage that ar- argument well, what about where the Bible says this? Uh-huh. You know, those those sort of arguments. Uh-huh. And this is the pastor in me. But I would come back with, why, well, why do you think that's that's an important verse to you? Why does that stick out to you? And what, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? Or, you know, it, 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 I would turn it just into a conversation where I'm only trying to hear them rather than convince them. So you think I'm being set up to hang myself? It's, yeah, I oh, do. Okay. Huh, okay. I especially think if somebody else starts the conversation, they're setting you up for a no-win situation. Okay, so it's pointless. Yeah, okay. I think it is. <laughs> I think that what, what, would, what would really shock people uh-huh. is to not argue back, but uh-huh. rather just say, no, I really want to understand more about, I mean, like, what when you when you started exploring this idea about this Bible verse being contradictory, like, what triggered that? Like, what were you, what were you trying to get at? Or, or where did you ever hear this Bible verse to begin with? Was it, like, a, do you Google a lot of things like that? Or do you, you know? <laughs> That's my approach. Right. right. I just, I go pastoral, and yeah. I'm, I, I just want to understand you and right. where you're coming from. Well, I guess this podcast is over. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for wrapping it up. <laughs> I'm not saying to never argue. There's a time and a place for it. But I've, I do think that when people have approached me with that sort of loaded thing, well, how about this one? Try it's like to- a martial arts. Like, I have this, uh, you know, the, this whooping crane move, <laughs> and I have my leaping frog move, yeah. you know. They try my Wu-Tang style. It's right. <laughs> Tiger style. <laughs> There's a guy that will argue with me about Jesus being, whether or not Jesus is himself God or not, and he'll he'll want to bring this argument up a lot, and, and I've I've just found that, like, he, he's already made up his mind, like, mm-hmm. that... Jesus was was not the divinity like he's decided that and so there's really no point in me trying to convince him otherwise but you wonder if you really if it's such a solid fact and I don't mean to demean your friend but if you still want to argue about it there must be some insecurity there or, or some sense that you may be on shaky ground there is and I think that's where we go back to the importance of those three boxes of, of your your established beliefs your deconstruction and your reconstruction um, that it has to be done by you. you. You have to be the one to do it. It doesn't mean that you wouldn't hear something inspiring from a conversation or read it in a book that would then... Because that's happened to me lots of times where I'm reading a book and my idea of something changed, you know, and, and I, I do change my viewpoint. So um, anyway, it's important there for him to that if he's going to come to the conclusion that Jesus is fully man and fully God... He's going to have to do that on his own, ultimately.
this is going to seem like apples and oranges, but I've been thinking recently about how much I used to love the original Star Wars movies and how the prequels somewhat and then the new movies are just totally ruined it. So when I see any of the images or hear any of the, the noises were from those original movies, it now pains me. It used to excite me. It used to have a lot of meaning to me. So I just discounted the entire thing. Like even now the original films were just like that. You know, really? I guess it would be akin to like having dated a person and loved so much about them, and then if it ends up ending badly, you know, everything that was that you loved about them is kind of ruined for a while until you can, you know, put some space between it and see like, oh, you know, that, those yeah. things are still there, and, yeah. and it was just unfortunate that uh, we weren't for each other. So I asked this of you and Richard Rohr because you know Richard Rohr meant a lot to you, and would end up. You become kind of soured on him a little bit, I yeah. perceive. So when you, when Richard Rohr comes up in conversation or somehow you come across his name, how do you feel? <laughs> Partly, I feel uh, the old hipster in me come back. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to say, well, I was reading Richard Rohr before he was, you know, the hot thing yeah. on, the, <laughs> on the indie Christian scene. Right. So uh, so there's a little That's... bit of arrogance. <laughs> oh, I was reading Richard Rohr years ago. Yeah. But really... I remember the moment where I, I I sort of just said, "Okay, enough's enough with Richard," uh, and it was a podcast that he was on, and I wish that I could quote it verbatim. But the the interviewer brought up they were talking about sexuality, and the interviewer addressed the gender of God, and Richard's response to the gender of God was so demeaning, and and it was so condescending. And he said, and again, I don't know if I'm quoting this verbatim, of course God's a woman. Don't be ridiculous. Or, and if he didn't say God's a woman, he may have said, of course, of course God is not a man. That's ridiculous. But I wouldn't have been as offended by that as I'm pretty sure he said God is feminine. God is, God is a female. That was it. I just thought, you know what? That's, that's enough. That's enough for me. Mm-hmm. Because you, once you start playing with the gender of God, you're, you know, you're really setting yourself up to go all kinds of wacky ways, which he, he really is. It's, mm-hmm. and it's almost like the more accolades he gets, the more showered with compliments and showered with attention and affection from the progressive media, the more progressive he gets. Uh, and that, of course, Buddhists are going to heaven. You'll hear him say things like that. Mm-hmm. But again, it goes back to that Apostles' Creed. That God, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And Jesus continually refers to God as the Father. Right. And so... You to me, God has feminine qualities. I, there's no doubt about that. To me, I believe He encompasses both, as He says, like a mother hen. I long to gather you under my feathers. I, I do think He has both, but I think the Bible most explicitly refers to Him as a Father. Mm-hmm. That is the figure that we are to see Him as, God right. the Father. And so, uh, to try and alter that is to me wanting to set yourself up to um, looking to change it to suit your own purposes. When I first heard that argument, it was mostly from somebody who was traditionalist, and they were arguing against about the idea about God being a woman or not. I remember at first I thought, well, I don't think God has genitals, so I don't really understand what the problem is here. And I just kind of thought, well, to me it doesn't matter what he is or she is. But then as time went on, I noticed that the, the pro-God-is-a-woman thing 
you know, they were so dogmatic about it, and really almost worse than people that were saying that God was a man. And I thought, yeah. well, how is that possible? <laughs> you know, yeah. I thought it didn't matter. It, it, that was the original arguments I heard. It didn't mean God's neither. But now it's become, oh, he's a woman, or she's a woman. How do you yeah. that? And so it's kind of funny how the progressives end up imitating the very bad qualities they see, and sometimes they are bad qualities, of the people they oppose, yeah. the people they're very bitter towards, you know. They, become, they have become fundamentalist in a way. They, that's right. They, the very tactics that they want to disarm uh, from conservative Christians are the same tactics they use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So using dogmatic, fundamentalist stuff like that that's non-negotiable. You know, to right. them it's not negotiable. I've got a joke that I say, and I don't know if I may have said it on your um, podcast before, Tim, and if I have, I that's apologize. Okay. But uh, if there's one thing that I just cannot tolerate, it's intolerance. That's right. <laughs> and that, that yeah. sums it up to me. Like, Well, maybe we can make this the last bit. What you said kind of really sums up a, a little bit it sums up a couple things about progressive Christians, and and I think it's something that we can all suffer from. That uh, first of all, again, they've become what they were against in a lot of ways. But also, um, in that attempt to look very rational and reasonable, they become very unrational and unreasonable. Now, having said that, I don't think that the traditional church is not to blame somewhat because at times they've rejected being reasonable or being compassionate, all these things that are kind of like these more tempered, I don't want to say middle of the road, but you know, yeah. a tempered approach to the law and morality and love and that type of thing. But it is interesting how further and further and how, you know, to somebody who's kind of standing in the same place, crazier and crazier they begin to become. Is that cruel for me to say that? That it leads to almost madness? I don't know that it's cruel for you to say that. Or am I actually mad and I can't see that they're on the, the right route because they're progressing, they're, they're growing, they're, they're becoming something better and blossoming, we'll even say. And I'm kind of stuck over here. This is another Richard Rohrism that is, that is good. It's a good thing. Is that we live in, in too much of a dualistic uh, mind frame where it's either A or B. Right. And that there is most often a third way somewhere in the middle. And I, and I think even with what you're saying, there is a third way there. Um, I think of myself as that I have my resolve about where I stand on abortion, where I stand on sexuality. And I have, uh, let's say, a progressive Christian friend who is also resolved. And, and they uh, have reevaluated the scriptures and they've come up with all the reasons why homosexuality is is okay for today that when we talk about the madness of one or the two i think i think the madness may be on both sides that it's that that we're so focused on it that we're so focused on that as being the defining issue about whether or not we're going to be able to be in relationship whether or not we're going to be able to continue as a denomination whether or not we're going to be able to uh, whether you're either a christian you even are a christian or not you know uh whereas I think that there's a there's a third way in there that takes both of both both sides of us out of madness, and uh, and brings us into a place of not compromise, mm. not compromise on what you believe, but into a third way that is less uh, fanatic, more wise, maybe. Yeah, 
more tempered where it takes you take the define the defining issue out of it like we let it become our defining issues whereas again we we talk about the creeds being the main doctrines and it's almost a lot of times now the church's main doctrines are political doctrines mm-hmm. you know that's that's our main talking points that's what we're known for i was at a church planting conference and there was a representative from the church of scotland and he said that there was a projected end date for the Church of Scotland. By 2030-something, whatever, there would be no more churches of their denomination open. Which, at one time, this was the main Church of Scotland. So somebody asked him, if you, if you look back over the last 20 or 30 years, what would you, what would you have done differently? And he said, I, I think the church should have stayed out of social and political issues more than it did. Hmm. So that's what I think. I think hmm. that there's a third way that's not madness that is more of just like the rich young ruler that looked and loved yeah. and, and still not compromise on your truth. Well, that's a, at the same time, though, the word relevant is a big buzzword. Yeah. Both, I think both in evangelical and, and progressives. Yeah. And I don't see how you can stay relevant and not somewhat get involved in... Yeah, things, it's know. a, it's a, my wife and I have had so many conversations about it, about where the line is. Right. Like, where is that line? Because we, we do have an obligation as the church to um, pro- proclaim the truth. Um, and which was a passage I wanted to, to share with you because our conversation started with a quote from Richard Rohr that God is always a mystery. Uh, In the book of Colossians, in the first chapter, I don't have it up for you, chapter and verse, but Paul says, pray for me so that I might be emboldened to proclaim the mystery of our faith. He's not always a mystery, but there is a mystery to it. If you read the Bible, if you really are a student of the Bible and not just trying to get the Bible to fit your beliefs, Mm -hmm. God is over and over again in Scripture shown himself as a God who reveals. He reveals himself when he wants to, how he wants to, and how much he wants to. And when he reveals those aspects of himself to us, it's not negotiable. It's not a mystery anymore. We know this. You know, When God reveals that when Jesus is baptized and, and the voice from heaven says, this is my son who I loved and I'm well pleased, that's it. It's done. Jesus is his son who he loves and he's well pleased. It's been revealed, right. you know. Has everything been revealed? No, not everything has been revealed. Have some things been revealed in part? Yes, and we don't fully understand them. Uh, like I, I, I think that communion is one of those things that has been revealed in part, but not in full. Like I think we'll be surprised when it all comes out in the wash how much actually happens at that table. Hmm. Last question. Go for it. Have you ever prayed for Richard Rohr? Never. No. Sorry. If you did, well, that maybe that's private, I guess. But yeah, you can ask it. Obviously, you still care for the guy. Yeah, because he meant a lot to you and he was helpful. And I will still, I will still read. I mean, like I will, if if he had a new book came out today that intrigued me, the subject intrigued me, I would pick it up. I would read it because mm-hmm. he 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 does. He has a lot of really great insights. Mm-hmm. It's just there's some junk in there. Right. He has gotten quite a condescending tone when it comes to 
those that don't agree with all of his things, his tone is becoming increasingly condescending or just divisive. If I were going to pray for Richard Rohr, I would pray uh, that his voice be used in a way that glorifies God and that is unifying instead of divisive. And I'm not sure that he is that divisive, but that's what I'd pray for him. I'd, I'd pray that his voice would be used in a way that 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 bridges gaps and men's men's fractures rather than further separating them. Okay. Well, thanks. Yeah. Great talking to you. Yeah. If you'd like to hear more of my guest today, Mac Wells, give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episode 165 a listen, where he talks about the Door of Hope facility in regards to their helping women in need, in addition to the difficult topic of abortion. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs)